Okay, members, um, you're welcome to use electronic devices if you can do the needful. If there's any declarations of interests in respect of the business, now is the time to declare them. Okay, um, then members are content. We'll take the oral evidence session being recorded by Hansard. There's no apologies. Uh, officials are attending via the Starley facility. Uh, relevant papers, including the letter setting out changes to the department's proposed amendments requested by the committee, at the meeting last Thursday on pages 7 to 44. So can I welcome Dr. Veronica Holland, Head of Violence Against the Person Branch, Stephen Martin, Deputy Director of Enabling Access to Justice Division, and John Bradley, Head of Branch, Civil Legal Aid Reform, from DOJ to the meeting. Um, again, this will be recorded by Hansard and transcript will be published on the committee uh, webpage. So we're, we're first going to just deal with um, the department's revised amendments with the exception of those that relate to civil legal aid first and we will deal with that then after we've disposed of the other amendments. The committee have um, obviously went through these. Uh, I'm not going to invite um, Veronica to, to talk us through um, because the letter is self-explanatory and members have an opportunity to um, consider the, the uh, amendments that have been provided. I have just one question, Veronica. Clause 29. Um, guidance on the data collection. If you can just elaborate for me um, why the department feel it is um, necessary to remove uh, the reference to the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service. <coughs> Essentially, the, the basis for that is that the department would be given um, advice to itself. Uh, so, the, the view from the drafts person and from the department is that it, it doesn't make sense for the department to give guidance to itself. That's not to say that the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service won't be covered to the same extent. Um, they are part and parcel of the Operationalisation Task and Finish Group um, that is meeting at the moment along with um, Case and PPS. And whatever information is going to Case and PPS in relation to the information that's to be obtained will also be shared with um, courts, the Courts and Tribunal Service. But as I say, because Courts and Tribunal Service is a part of the department, um, the department would, as I said, essentially give advice to itself or, or, or a requirement on itself. And wh why is that same argument not relevant in the reference to training where it cites the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service specifically on the bill? I suppose in relation to the training, there was, you know, the, the committee is obviously very keen and it's made explicitly clear that there is, and was, that there is a, a mandatory nature in relation to that training and that the undertaking. Annually, if, if you don't have that, that reflected in the legislation, the concern from the committee's perspective would be that that wouldn't be covered. Okay. It doesn't any, does it do so that? that is, is in relation to a, a, a duty as opposed to um, a, a more general aspect. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll bring in any other members then in terms of these amendments. Linda? Just, I suppose, to clarify, it's not even a question, Veronica, but just to clarify the, the issue that was raised on Thursday around the DAPOs and DAPNs and the, the age at which those become relevant or applicable. And we had talked about whether it should be 18 or 16. So, obviously, based on the letter that has come from Nicky and, and the department's um, own letter and th the fact that this is the case in other jurisdictions that it's 18 and that, I suppose focus on other interventions other than giving young people a criminal record, I would certainly be supportive of keeping it at 
18 and I think that's the right the right approach by the department so just to clarify that. There is also a concern in speaking with colleagues in some of the other jurisdictions and it clear as a committee that this is not just a, a justice approach that education has to be a, a crucial element of it so that would hopefully address some of the issues around young people and the healthy relationship stuff so thank you Veronica. thank you chair okay thanks linda um rachel thank you chair um thank you veronica i just want to clarify with regard to the um regulations on, on dapos and DP, dapns or by other name um, who is paying for these orders notices? Is that in these regulations or is that to come after? It wouldn't be covered in the regulations in terms of paying for them. Um, that's something that we want to be considering in terms of kind of the, the monies that would be available to police for this and in terms of bringing these forward. There's also a, a sense that a number of these orders there will be to a certain extent movement within the system. So in some instances where a non-molestation order is currently being taken forward or an occupation order is being taken forward, some of that money, some of the, the funding associated with that will move within the system. If that makes sense, it's something to be, um, you know, that will have to be looked at in more detail, um, but not something that, that needs to be provided for in the regulations. Okay, thank you. And just one more point on that. Is that going to form part of the consultation that's being launched by the department? In terms of the funding, there's a, a section in that um, the consultation paper about the public and financial impact on which we're seeking views. Okay, thank you. Any other members in this group of amendments? Sorry, Linda. It's just a tiny point. It's an, an acknowledgement and just to commend the department and the education department for adding in the, the issue of preschools that Sinead Bradley had raised at Thursday's meeting. I think that was a good piece of work and to get that done so quick. Okay, so um, Veronica, in terms of th those group of amendments, I think the, the committee, um, and we haven't taken a formal position on them, but I think we're, we're there in terms of having a agreed position on that. That's why I don't feel the need to, to labour those aspects of it, but the committee will, will formally take a position on them um, shortly after we, we deal with the, the legal aid aspect of it. So um, I appreciate the department having listened last week uh, and I think has reflected the will of the committee in terms of those discussions um, and we can make progress on that basis so thank you for that um, so if you're happy veronica we'll move on to the legal aid aspect now and um stephen i think you're going to just take us quickly through the proposed amendments okay So, to um, begin with our proposed new clause 27, this will provide for financial eligibility waiver for victims of domestic abuse to be able to access the legal aid for them to defend or pay an application being brought by their abuser. We we'll replace the clause 27 currently in the bill and it differs from the existing clause 27 in a number of important ways. 
critical to call the department's expressed concern that the current uh, uh, provision could give rise to an increase in litigation to the complication of litigation by an increase in the number of allegations of domestic abuse arising in such circumstances and by, uh, in particular, by the misuse of the waiver by abusers to perpetuate their abuse further through the courts. Uh, these concerns arise principally out of two, two features of the current clause 27. The lack of an evidentiary test the director can apply to identify a victim and the ability to use the waiver to bring proceedings as well as to defend them. And so the replacement clause 27 addresses both of those um, issues by limiting the circumstances of the waiver to defending applications brought by their abuser and by adding provision for guidance under the Legal Aid Corners Courts Act would identify the uh, evidence that would enable the director to be satisfied that the person was in fact the victim of abuse as intended. Um, the replacement clause 27 also would limit the application of the waiver to representation lower, while well, currently that's provided for advice uh, and assistance and representation generally. This is because, and on the one hand, advice and assistance is not generally required in circumstances where someone is seeking to defend an application that's been made to the court or move immediately in the representation lower, and because we believe that representation circumstances can better be provided for in respect of representation higher through existing bars that the department has people in those circumstances. Um, do you like me also to describe the 27A or do you want to do them separately? No, feel free to go on to 27A. <coughs> the 27A is, um, is a clause model of the previous the department's previous amendment A26, which is to provide for a report uh, on the uh, legislation and other steps that might be taken to further protect uh, uh, abuse, uh, victims of domestic abuse in the course of regulated uh, family proceedings, uh, anticipates that uh, further regulations might be required under the Access to Justice Order for that purpose, or that some other course of action uh, might, might best serve the purpose. It provides a timetable for that report, uh, defines its purpose as either reducing and putting in specific circumstances to nil the financial costs incurred by a client in these circumstances, and also preventing, as so far as reasonably possible, the undue use of the court system uh, to bring proceedings in an abusive manner against the qualifying uh, uh, person. Um, the remainder of the provisions in Clause 27, both Clause 27 are uh, definitions of the various, of the various um, uh, terms used there, qualifying procedure on the plan, abusive person, and so forth. Um, the part of the intention behind this revised clause deal with those limited or exceptional circumstances where the, it may be useful to extend the application of the financial eligibility waiver provided for by clause 27 to cover, for example, uh, the bringing of applications in certain circumstances um, or to extend it otherwise as, as may be necessary, but it's also intended to become issues uh, such as the, the use of the courts by their current powers to prevent, uh, to prevent uh, use of applications being Okay, thank you, John. That's helpful. A um, couple of quick questions just to clarify for my benefit. The amendment then 27.1a.b. So see in terms of the director being satisfied, um, and that's obviously an issue that I think all of us struggle to, to try and set out what the parameters are. 
what would the parameters be here for the director in reaching a determination as to what is a victim of abuse? The intention would be that under uh, what would be clause 27 2, guidance would be issued by the department that would set out uh, in what circumstances the director could be satisfied that someone was a victim of abuse. The form of that guidance, we imagine, would essentially amount to a list of uh, forms of evidence that the director could take uh, as, as evidence that a person was, was in fact a victim. Um, we discussed previously the fact that the clearest of such evidence would be available would be evidence that a person had been convicted of a relevant offence or of an offence aggravated in a way anticipated by the bill by domestic abuse. Um, there might be other forms of evidence, for example, with a finding of fact in a court that a person has, has engaged in such behaviour uh, or some other documentary form of evidence that could be set out that would enable the, the, the director to be certified. What we'd like is to be satisfied. What we'd like to do is to go and explore with stakeholders what forms of evidence might best be used for that purpose and to explore the consequences and risks of including each of those within the definition. Essentially, there's going to be a balance to be struck between, on the one hand, living in immediate convictions where the director can be absolutely certain uh, that the person is a victim and to admitting other uh, less definitive forms of evidence to stand, um, which broadens the application of the waiver to more deserving parties, but with each step that's taken in that direction, opens up greater risk of its, of its use by people who are not in fact victims of abuse and may in fact be abusers. Um, the, the intention would be to explore that issue for the stakeholders uh, and, and to go forward with proposals in the guidance as to what balance would the MP start between those two. And would that guidance have any statutory underpinning? The intention is that 27.2, as would be part of this bill, would provide that statutory underpinning. So our concern at present is that the department could, of course, issue guidance to the director, but without making, making express provision in the bill that, that anticipates that guidance coming forward. Um, a, a challenge may be made that we were on duty fettering the discretion that had been granted to the director by the primary legislation. By putting on the face of the bill in this way, we ensure that that, that, the, uh, the, that, that guidance is more robust and, uh, because it's anticipated by the bill is not as vulnerable to challenge at a later stage. And would it, would it come through the Assembly in any way via regulation for, for that list? That the intention would be, sorry, the intention would be to consult on the guidance we therefore come before the committee for consideration as part of that process. Um, and we hope that we'll be able to work with the committee on its development uh, as, as, as the Department of Office proposals. Um, okay. In, in terms of the reference in 27.1a around representation and the lower courts, just elaborate for me, um, the, as the bill is currently now in place, it cites advice and assistance or representation. So if you can just comment on your wording vis-a-vis -vis the current wording. The, the, the two key differences with our wording are that firstly, as you observe, advice and assistance wouldn't be covered by the waiver. And secondly, the representation in the higher courts wouldn't be covered by the waiver. The reason that we seek to exclude advice and assistance is that the circumstances that are anticipated here is that an abused person is seeking to defend an application 
made by their abuser. In those circumstances, they're not in need of advice and assistance. They're in need of assistance and representation, which is provided under a representation of the worst certificate. So advice and assistance isn't relevant for, for the abused person in these circumstances. Um, the reason that we see the exclude representation higher is that by applying this waiver directly to representation higher, we step on the toes of provisions that are already in place that allow the director to make um, a discretionary, sorry, to, to a discretionary basis disregard incumbent capital uh, for the purposes of ensuring equitability, um, which we consider to provide superior protection in the circumstances where they are required. So the circumstances that would arise might include, for example, a person being granted the waiver to defend a, an application for these proceedings brought in the lower courts. Uh, those proceedings then transferred into a higher court, um, and then the director would then be in a position to use his discretion to ensure that a person beyond the protection of the lower courts was not less favorably treated when moving into the different, uh, the different statutory realm of representation higher. Um, they managed to ensure their, 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 their protections were retained. Um, so, so we, we essentially like to make use of the existing protections of all of the in the very limited circumstances where representation Okay, so the, 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 the wording you provided representation, that includes, for my benefit, um, an action is being taken against um, a client, the respondent to go to their solicitor and to get assistance right from the start of proceedings, um, yes. including then once you're in the, the family court? Yes, so representation though, recovers all of the help and assistance and, and representation that a person needs in the course of ongoing proceedings. Advice and assistance is intended to cover those circumstances where uh, proceedings are contemplated only. So you might go and seek advice and assistance as to whether you want to bring proceedings against another party, where proceedings have already been initiated, where you need, and you need to defend them, representation nor is a system under which you get the help that you need in those circumstances. Okay. Um, for completeness, let me just pick up on the other amendment. In terms of the report that would set out the department's proposals, um, and it makes clear that that would be by way of regulations under the Access to Justice Order, Again, in terms of the oversight of that, would that be by way of an affirmative or a negative resolution of the Assembly for those proposals? Yes, um, Chair, those regulations are by negative resolution, but the report has to be made uh, for the Assembly. So you get two bites of the cherry, essentially. You get the report, and then any subsequent regulations would be, be laid before you, so you would have two bites of the cherry. Um, and it's solely confined to the Article 8 aspect in terms of that amendment that you would be reporting on, so it wouldn't be on wider aspects of legal aid in respect of other offences under domestic abuse? We haven't been able to identify the circumstances in which it might be necessary to go wider at present. I think if we, if we start the policy work and look at the, the support that might be necessary for victims in these circumstances, and that suggests that in fact support is needed in other areas. I would expect that more might comment on that um, to, to, to let the committee have the benefit of the evidence that we have to, to that effect. 
then that that would replace amendment 27 or sorry yes the the, the new clause 27 that once you get to the point that you're laying down this report that that would supersede that's one that's one potential recommendation the report might make i wouldn't necessarily take the view that that would be automatic i mean among the things that that report will want to look at will be the operation of the Clause 27 in practice. So one of the things that we're currently uh, seeing in the establishment in the Department of Legal Services Agency is the arrangements that will be necessary to monitor and evaluate the operation of this clause to, to determine whether it's helping the people be goodwill and uh, what the cost implications are and look at some of the potential unintended effects of it. Um, so that we will write the report with the benefit of evidence about what the effect of Clause 27 to you have a number of questions um, I'll start just working backwards just picking up on what's already been said um, in terms of the, the, the proposals here with regard to the only the lower courts and it would be only representation stated that that would also include advice and assistance are you stating that your amendment as, as it stands the proposal includes advice and assistance and representation at rep lower including pre-proceedings So that's just that's not my understanding from speaking with members of the legal um, 
profession in the last 24 hours um, of what, what this amendment would, the, the principles of the amendment would seek to do. Um, so just, again, just to clarify, if I'm going to a solicitor for child contact, and I, I appreciate that with regard to the representation of the lower courts, this is all predicated <laughs> on somebody defending. Um, but if we take that aside, in terms of going to a solicitor for child contact and you're initiating proceedings, um, if there was a, a, a part in an amendment saying that it only had to deal with represent whenever you're defending, i.e. you're the respondent in this, um, that pre-proceedings such as mediation, which is a requirement to solicitors, in, in my understanding, to offer mediation to couples or parents or ex-partners um, on child contact, that that would not be covered in the department's amendment as it currently stands. So, as it currently stands, the, the, the department's amendment would allow for the application waiver only in circumstances where an application had been made to the courts for an article 8 uh, proceeding by the abuse of partner. It wouldn't apply to provision of advice and assistance for other purposes. Okay, so um, do you, would you see that that being a bit of an unnecessary barrier to a lot of people who would be seeking advice and assistance, given that they would have to front the costs of that, but then the waiver may or may not step in if there was proceedings taken against them only? The, 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 the important thing to remember is advice and assistance is 88 pounds. It doesn't come with mediation, so not quite sure if the mediation comes. There's currently no, um, no related pre-court mediation scheme. It's something that we're looking at uh, in terms of our um, areas mentioned Separating parents action plan, but there's no current um pre pre proceedings mediation and advice assistance is eighty eight pounds. So it's like we're spreading now set of circumstances and that's still the um the kinds of issues that uh proceedings are being taken against you would be covered by the regulatory certificate. And part of the purpose of, of having twenty seven A as an additional amendment is that we can look beyond the immediate purpose of post twenty seven, which is the assistance circumstances where an application is being brought against an assistant party, we can look and see what other additional forms of support might be useful. So if mediation pre-proceedings uh, or pre-litigation is anticipated, what effective forms of support can we offer to people to enable them to explore that route? It might be that a financial eligibility waiver for advice and assistance could be the most useful form. It, it may well be that some other form of, of help is more helpful in those circumstances. And um, one relevant consideration to bear in mind is that a financial eligibility waiver doesn't give anyone access to free legal aid. It gives them access to legal aid subject to their making financial contribution. And circumstances where a person is above the financial, financial eligibility threshold and therefore a need of a waiver, uh, their contribution can be very significant, especially in the context of advice and assistance, where in the first instance the costs are limited to Respect, I would make that argument for its inclusion at this stage um, for the best possible support for victims at the earliest possible stage. Um, it, so it, I would be making the same argument. Um, in terms of 
the regulation only applying to an applicant for the lower courts. Uh, you've limited it to lower courts and have brief, uh, briefly explained that. Um, but in terms of cases where there is implacable hostility between A and B, for example, it's my understanding that these cases would be referred by the rep lower to the rep higher um, by way of the family care centre or indeed straight to the uh, high courts. So would the department's amendment mean that the waiver no longer applies in that case? That's correct. So when the, when the case was transferred from the Family Receiving Centre to the FC to the Family Care Centre or to the High Court, the waiver would no longer apply uh, a separate uh, protective, separate scheme to be under the terms of the representation higher scheme. And so there are, number, there, there are two potential circumstances that arise there. One is where a person has a waiver at the work courts and they move out on moving the representation higher scheme, which is different from that's an eligibility test. They may find themselves in a position of being financially eligible and no longer need a waiver. Okay. In the alternative, they may transfer up to the higher court and find that they're still outside the financial eligibility uh, limits for representation higher. In those circumstances, the waiver will apply to them. Um, and the intention is for us to work with the MSA to explore the application of the existing discretions available to the director under the Financial Provisions Act, which included his discretion to disregard capital or income for the purposes of determining a person's eligibility and from, uh, for assessing the size of their contribution. Um, yeah, so the, whilst, whilst, I appreciate, whilst I appreciate that um, it's in terms of working with LX, LSA to explore an already existing waiver or discretionary power that, that is already there, can you just confirm that that has not been used? It hasn't been used to date because the circumstances haven't arisen to date. The circumstances we're talking about are um, the transfer of a person who has had the financial eligibility to be exercised in their favour into the lower courts, transferring to the higher courts. Necessarily, that circumstance hasn't yet arisen because the financial eligibility waiver isn't currently in place. But no, to date, it is not the, the discretionary power hasn't been used with respect to family cases. Okay. So the task that would be in front of us is to determine the circumstances in which it would not apply in the context of the waiver being lower courts. Um, at present, in all circumstances, the protections that are the, the, the financial eligibility test uh, for the, the, that applies at higher court levels is generally more uh, protective of applicants than that which applies at the lower courts. Um, and what we'll be looking to do is to ensure that situation pertains, that the client is not less favourably treated under a higher than they would be under the lower when the financial waiver is operational. Okay, um, I, I just, in terms of the, the already existing waiver, because it hasn't been used, um, it, it's not, obviously it's not already there, because it's not there because, or it hasn't been used because there hasn't been a, the, a, the need to use it with regard to eligibility, it hasn't been used full stop. So if, if it hasn't been used, why hasn't it been used? Because I've had many representations being debated, I'm sure other members have as well, of um, especially women being dragged through the high courts on appeals um, at the cost of, say, 80 grand in debt. So if there is a, if there is a, a way of, 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 of putting a waiver out, it hasn't been used, so obviously that needs to be looked at, but I don't see that to be the detriment of, of uh, then having this in place as well. But just in terms of com complex cases, those involving mental health um, issues or other serious allegations would be referred to the higher courts again by the magistrates' courts or the lower courts. Um, so the department's amendment doesn't mean does, it, does that mean that those victims can't access the waiver just so as soon as as soon as that that's been pushed up to higher then there is no 
waiver for complex or those involving mental health allegations or serious allegations? Uh, yes, for clarity, the, 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 when the case transfers from the FPC to a higher court, for any reason, the waiver will cease to apply as it would under our amendment, we will cease to apply the applies in the representation door. You uh, will need to look at what other protections might apply in respect of grant hire and the ongoing proceedings. But the principle would be that the, uh, the person is not less favorably treated when the, um, when the proceedings transfer to the higher courts than they are under the existing scheme. And just to confirm um, all, all so, of Sorry, go ahead. No, I was merely going to add, and of course, the, the part of the purpose of Clause 27A is to allow us to give consideration to what, some, what those protections might be, how the waiver might operate in the lower courts, and how indeed a waiver might eventually be introduced in respect of representation higher if that's, if that's the best available form of protection. Um, the intention is not, is not to introduce this and stop here, the intention is to introduce this and then look at what, um, what, what, what further or additional alternative protections might, might be in the best interest of these. Okay, and again, I would argue that putting it in wider, well, I'm saying wider now, um, the way the way it is written at the moment, um, and then you know can can assess in a couple of years' time also stands with regard to the um, publication and um, sort of getting guidance for the director um, to on terms of what is the the applicable information about the commission or alleged commission of an offence. Uh, is there a time scale within the department's amendment of when that guidance would be drawn up and when it would be um, would be you know, from? When, when does the department see this date starting? Uh, the guidance will need to be in place before the director is called on to make his first decision uh, as to the application of a waiver. So when the, uh, the waiver is operational and someone makes an application, we need to have the guidance in place in advance to have the director make that decision. So we haven't put a firm date for that. Um, the intention is to bring it in, uh, in line with the entering operation of the, uh, of the provision of the waiver. So wh when would that be with regard to the department's currently worded amendment? When do you envision, envision that happening? Well, that, that's, our, that's our first piece of, of work. Um, post, post the, uh, the, the final stages to, to start working on that guidance. So, as I said, we can't give you a firm date, but that's, uh, that's the first thing we would need to do because the whole system will be able to work effectively without it. Yeah, I appreciate that. So in terms of if there's no firm date, there's no um, date to working towards, there's no date to have it in. And yet within 27A, it's a two year reporting requirement to report on the effectiveness of 27 within 27A. So how could you assess that this waiver was working ineffectively and working for victims if there is no firm data when the guidance is in and then two years after the rule is sent, that there would be an assessment done? Okay, I mean, so we've been working on this and the, the way that Clause 27 2 is crafted is that the guidance must be produced by the department. The department is required to produce this guidance. Um, and we can't simply avoid it by not doing it. And because the waiver doesn't operate effectively without it, in circumstances where the department, with the waiver given an operation, the department did not produce the guidance, uh, the department will be immediately in default of its, uh, of its duty under 27 2. Um, so the, 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 the timeline, if, if you want more further production of the guidance, is it must be in place when the waiver becomes operational. Yeah, and I appreciate that, but without, um, in terms of the, the, I'm not questioning that the, the, the department um, 
must produce it. it yes, it's written down here. Without a date and a time that it needs to be operational by, how do you foresee a two-year assessment period within 27A adequately assessing its effectiveness if it's not in place by the time the reporting is done? Well, in, in many ways, that's the answer, isn't it? Because I mean, 27A isn't just about reporting the effectiveness of 27, it's broader than that. But we would need a, a reasonable period um, for 27 to be operational. So, as I say, it's the first piece of work that we would need to do. We can't commit to, to a date until we look at our, our resources and do the planning. Um, so, you know, once we've done that, we're, we're happy to come back to the committee on that. But, we need to take a little bit of time looking at the resources we have available, reprioritizing our other work, some of which is also uh, a significant priority, and then come back to the committee. I can't give you a firm date today. But the answer to the question is the campaign will be able to be available is it will be available as and from the commencement of the um, the entry into force of, of the of the waiver. So as soon as it's operational, there will be guidance to support it. That's what the legislation requires. We can't, there's no circumstances in place this legislation permits us to have the waiver operational and not have producing guidance. Okay, and just to clarify, when does this waiver come into operation? It comes into operation when the relevant section of the bill comes into operation. Do you have um, a, a date on that? Again, no, because um, this will be subject to a separate commencement order and it will be commenced when it's ready to be commenced. So, as I said, this is something that we're prioritising, but we've got a whole lot of other things to prioritise. These we need to look at our, our resource position. Uh, I can't give you a firm date on either uh, issue at this stage, but this will need to be to come into operation um, you know, in a reasonably um, short time, but I can't give you a date at this stage. And that is exactly what concerns me um, with all of this, is that the department has come forward with these amendments and have taken 27 in, in its entirety um, with regard to the eligibility for victims of civil legal aid, has tied it down to only the lower courts, only respondents, and only those whenever your funding representation um, does not have any forward program in terms of what is going to be done in the higher courts we already have something in place and it's clearly not working because it hasn't been used um, and it is limiting restricting part of the court system for victims of abuse so we're bringing in the domestic abuse and family proceedings bill with no indication about what date any of these will com be commenced and no indication for victims of domestic abuse who are currently being trailed through the courts of when this actually comes in because it is competing with priorities already in the department and to deal with resources and we don't know when it will be commenced because it will commence when it will be commenced because there is no firm date written within the department's amendments as they currently stand. Um, I echo the chair's question earlier on with regard to how these are being laid. Um, I would have very big concerns that this is going to be done in negative resolution. I don't see this as having two bites of the cherry. I see this must come in as draft affirmative. Um, this is far too important if we're looking at legal aid and support for victims through the, the court system. Um, the defence um, case, in, in terms of, of having it only the client as a respondent of proceedings, um, if you could outline the reason for the, the regulation being worded like that and why it's necessary, and does that then um, 
Does that address the concerns that were raised with us last week with regard to potential abuse of this by perpetrators um, alleging to be victims? Does that, um, does that, you know, does that align the department's fears on that? So you're, you're right in saying that the reason that it's limited to people seeking to defend an application is in response to the, the issue, the potential issue of the waiver being used either by people who aren't and shouldn't be entitled to something, i.e., who aren't victims of abuse, or in the worst case, by abusers to, to uh, abuse the waiver to perpetuate abuse further. Um, uh, yes, that's for exactly that reason. So, the, the, given our understanding of the rationale here being to prevent the perpetuation, sorry, to uh, to mitigate the effect of perpetuation of abuse through the courts uh, by abusers, um, by limiting or even defending applications, it, 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 it answers that purpose uh, without opening up the risk of the misuse of the provision by, by others. And can you clarify that that addresses the department's concerns on that as it's written? Well, I mean, I think, I think there, there are risks, so we outlined them in our last session, so in the interest of time, we're not going to, to reverse those. I mean, any of these options carry risk. This is, this is the, the, removes some of the more significant risks, but there, there, there are risks that remain. Um, and hence why we want to look to be 27A, a fresh at this in, in, a, in a reasonable time frame. So does it, does it address all of the risks that we identified? No. Does it address the significant risks? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, but it does limits the scope if um, a victim wanted to take proceeding, uh, proceedings against their abuser. Um, it only covers those victims when cases are taken against them? It's our calculation that, yes, yes that's exactly correct, it allows the legal defending to defend proceedings. It's our calculation that to allow beneficiaries of the waiver also bring applications um, would entail too much additional risk uh, relating to the misuse of the waiver um, and that on balance to, to mitigate that risk appropriately was necessary to the defending applications, the intention then being to use the proposed clause 27A to explore what circumstances in which that waiver could safely and reasonably be extended to the bringing of applications also, or what alternative uh, uh, protections might apply in those circumstances. And just to, uh, with regard to that last point and the guidance that's under section 2, surely there would be. Um, in, within the guidance under section two, there would be um, information, applicable information about the commissioner alleged commission that would weed out, um, to use a bad term, to weed out potential um, people who are abusing the system in um, effect, uh, elective proceedings. Um, so you wouldn't actually have a, a time where you would have less risk of abusers using the system um, and you know pretending to be victims to get an eligibility waiver because the guidance already exists for the Director of, of Legal Services to, to decide if that information is indeed applicable. And if, if we can limit this to where there's any conviction, then absolutely we can avoid uh, you know, the, the clear circumstances. But our, our reading of what the committee wanted 
variety of reasons. So the broader the ego in terms of defining a victim, the more risk you bring in. So, you know, it's a trade-off here. If, if, we, if we limited that guidance in terms of so we have convictions, um, that, that would be one thing that you would try and capture all of those who, who are our victims in a, you know, or, um, with, or who you may see as victims. That that brings an additional risk. That's that's our that, that's, that's the key issue there. Yeah, and that's there anyway because it's in within the guidance. But what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is that you put a um, you've confined it to the client being responded in proceedings to try the d sort of defence um, requirement. Um, you've confined that to try and reduce the uh, the risk of abusers using the system. But surely within the guidance, you would have to have some um, applicable information about the commission or the alleged commission of domestic abuse in order to weed that out anyway. So do the two things. Yeah, yes. Yes, this is the point we're trying to make. If, if, it, if it was a watertight um, definition of a victim, so if there, was, if there was a conviction there, that's that's very clear, and it's very clear information. And yes, we possibly could go into those circumstances slightly broader in terms of the types of proceedings. But in order to avoid that interaction between, uh, you know, and, and cut down on the abuse, uh, you know, that, that we, 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 we can do that. The alternative is we go slightly broader on your victims, but then we're Appreciate that, and and with respect, there is no committee position on this. Um, so I think this is. I appreciate that you're trying to come back on a number of things that were were mentioned by the committee. Um, we're, I, I'm certainly not looking at any way of having conviction tied to this, but just in terms of, of balancing that out and having people abusing the system, um, I I don't buy that risk enough to have it written down on 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 an amendment. Um, at all, I think this need, needlessly restricts um, the the eligibility and actually is creating a very artificial group of victims that may be eligible for this. So I'm just wondering, in terms of numbers, um, obviously there was a lot of risk in terms of cost, and we still haven't got to the bottom of the double figure millions that we were, were spoken to. So I'm wondering if the um, department does have any sort of uh, financial uh, pressures or costs that would be in relation to your amendment as it's currently drafted? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the department's proposed amendment obviously limits the cost because it's limiting the types of proceedings. Um, so we, we haven't been able to cost that out in the short period of time that we had, but it would be a more limited cost than, than, uh, than, than the world amendment, certainly. But we don't have any information on on either of those apart from the the double figure millions which we still haven't quantified about where that came from yes during the normal policy development process obviously we've done impact assessment human rights impact assessments um, business cases we haven't had any time to do any of those things because you know this has been a matter of about a couple of weeks so um that's part of what we'd be looking at in 27a um looking at those, those impact assessments Rights assessments, business cases for doing other things, but in, the, in a very short period of time, we, we've had available, we haven't been able to, to, um, to use those documents, obviously. Okay. 
Chair, my last point on um, that other others come in because um, it could take all day. Um, I I appreciate the, the difference between A26 and A27 and A27A, but I see this as another delaying um, another delaying amendment. Um, and certainly it, it's not going to be working for victims of domestic abuse that are needing legal aid to um, deal with child contact orders. Uh, it's creating an artificial group of, of victims and certainly one that will not be workable for those in the legal profession to help victims. And that is what we're here for, is to assist victims. And this does not do that um, without the information that we, we need. And we don't have guidance. We don't know what that is. And it is, you know, as and when, whenever it's going to commence. We don't have a date there. So I appreciate um, the department coming back on this. But certainly, um, I, I, can't, I can't support the, the um, amendment as it's written. If it's helpful in terms of timing, since you're just one of the points that you raised, um, the, our proposed post-27, and clause 27 that currently stand part of the bill um, are uh, in the same position. I mean, uh, with respect to timing, each of them will come into operation uh, on the commencement of the relevant chapter of the bill. So there's no departure in terms of the proposals that we have from, from those that currently, currently stand part of the bill in that regard. And, and just to slightly reiterate, the, the guidance that's required under our proposed clause 27 will be required on exactly the same time scale. So to the extent there's any concern about potential delay, it doesn't arise about any, uh, about any of the proposed changes that we propose to make clause 27. It, it exists with regard to the current provisions too. Um, Linda, Sinead and then Paul. Just um, a quick point in relation to the lower and the, the higher court. And I, and I accept what you're saying in relation to you know, the protections in the higher court are, are potentially greater. Is there, is there a halfway meeting point where there could be some kind of an assessment as to whether the waiver that is already in place would be better, would better serve the defendant than what we're talking about that would be in place in the lower court so that, that it could potentially stay in place if it's going to be the better form of protection um, without, I suppose, unintentionally negatively impacting the victim or the respondent, and then just in relation to the that definition around that it, that it is only in defence, you know, we're a defendant. I have to be honest. My understanding was that it, we were trying to stop the abuse where people were repeatedly being brought back to court, and those were the conversations we had as a committee. So I would be content with that at this time, only because I have the fear of the further abuse. Being, you know, being used if we go outside of that, and I think that there does need to be more work to establish to make sure that that's not what's going to happen, because most of the cases I have dealt with have been cases where people have been repeatedly taken back to court and where they're the respondent. I very seldom find a case of an abused person who is actually taking court proceedings because, in the majority of cases, they're so glad to be out of that circumstance. But I have no doubt that there are, like any of these things. Um, you know, the law is so complex and so difficult, and particularly when it comes to family law and children, that there will be cases that, that I can understand where Rachel's concerns come from, but I think that it needs to be properly backed up with evidence and facts, and that we need to make sure that what we put in place is actually right. So for me, I would be supportive that it, at this point that it is about the respondent, but 
that's why I'm actually glad the 27A is there because we do need to get the further evidence around this to see is there is there more measures and better measures that could be put in place to protect um, those who are victims of abuse. We know how the, the family courts are already used to further abuse and all of those laws were put in place with good intention and with good scrutiny and with all the evidence and information to back them up, you would like to think. So I just would be concerned about putting something in place without that. So it would be, we may not be able to reach a committee position on this because it would be my position that we would, we would be, at this point, it would be where the person is a respondent, but that I certainly wouldn't want it to be limited to that forevermore, which is why I think the 27A is important. But if there's a halfway meeting point in terms of the upper the upper courts, because I share Rachel's concerns around that, around the fact that you could have people going there without any protections. And I mean, it comes back to the same point and why I very much would have supported this initially is this is about protecting those victims from being further abused, both financially and psychologically. But that whole thing about draining the resource and it's that further ability to have that financial control and fiscal control over the victim even whenever they've got out of the, the circumstance, the relationship. That's it. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Sinead. Thank you, Chair. Um, I suppose there is no committee view, but also what's becoming more apparent, there's no committee objective in terms of what was to be achieved here. And like Linda, my understanding was that this is the domestic abuse bill and we were talking to that part of it where the victim is perpetually being weaponised via the court system. And I have taken um, some direction from some family um, lawyers on this regard. And I do follow and understand the reasoning behind the 27A as the, you know, the further pace of retrospectively looking at the data and what happened. But I do wonder, um, you mentioned in your presentation to us that there was some, I think you said, stepping on the toes of the director's discretion around the discount of capital. And I do wonder at this stage, should we be looking deeper into that? For example, if somebody has had success um, in a civil order and they then apply I'm advised by the solicitors that one of the biggest obstacles to them immediately is the fact that their housing benefit, child tax credit is all taken into account, even though that's not actual money in their pocket. So I'm wondering, is the answer to this in that waiver, is that early piece of work around the waiver the right place to resolve this? Because as it stands, I'm not convinced the 27 is going to have serious effect um, with our immediate effect. And I do understand that we could go back and refine that further, but there is a very obvious, some low-hanging fruit where we get to help those who will be most um, affected by that perpetual weaponising of the court and the fact that that, that that money is accounted. I don't know. Um, and also, I know there's this appeals mechanism that triggers in the, um, the family care centre. You know, all of that has to be taken into account. So I don't know if any considerations been given to that, or if you anticipate that being in the guidance or in the further piece of work that you intend to do. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
tries to do something immediate and directly for uh, vulnerable people who are, are having this experience of being dragged really before the courts to do something right away to help them and to do so in a way that is limited in terms of its potential risk and unintended consequences. 27A is clearly intended to operate in conjunction with that and to say there are circumstances with which this limited and immediate measure will not help. Uh, and we want to go and take the time to understand what we can best do for people in those circumstances. Um, with particular regard to this business of the operation of the waiver in respect of the higher courts, so in cases of transfer, I've already repeated the higher courts. The financial eligibility test of the higher courts allows for the provision of legal aid in circumstances where a person might have a moderate income or some degree of capital in hand. What the waiver would do would be to remove that cap on the availability of legal aid. But what it would also do is necessitate for anyone who is able to waiver then operate at that level would necessitate really very substantial contributions to their own costs in those circumstances. And especially where a person has capital in hand, for example, in the circumstances you described, where they've had a successful uh, civil order granted in their favour, where they have capital at hand amounting more than £3,000, the amount of their contribution is going to be is going to end up being as much as the full cost of the proceedings, and even the government won't operate to their benefit at all, even though it applies to them. That's why we say what we want to do is to go and understand what sort of circumstances these people are in when they're coming before the higher courts and how we can then best help them. Um, and it seems to me that the operation of the existing um, the existing discretion disregard capital and income is a more um, potentially helpful starting point to look for those solutions than, 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 it, than it is to, to try to apply a waiver of the financial eligibility test in these circumstances. But see, these are complex and contested areas of law, and whichever help we try to give, its outworkings will be determined uh, in large part by what happens in the courts themselves and the challenges of the department's decisions, the last decisions about the operation of these things. It's important to take the time to get them right. So it's right, what we say is Clause 27 helps now, helps a vulnerable group of people who are in need of support. And we think that the protections that we've sought to introduce in the redrafting it help to limit any potential negative consequences of it and allow that, 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 that early win to be grasped safely. And Clause 27 says we will now, we will then look and see what further protections can be afforded and how we can go safely into the territory. For example, allow applications to be made or circumstances to say that that's the best way of resolving the issue to allow for uh, protection for people who have the reputation of the higher courts. That's exactly the intent of the operation. And I don't think the fact that there's a two-year uh, uh, window envisaged for the presentation of a report to the committee might you know, um, prevent sensible proposals being brought forward in the light of evidence by the operation of the paper in an earlier time scale, say, if, if, if it's very apparent that there are issues with the operation of practice, or that there are people who are, are without its help that we can quickly and, 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 and readily do something for, what it does do is, is we hope give confidence in the assembly that in a reasonable period of time uh, that wider issues can be looked into and sensible proposals to help people. 
Sorry, can I just um, say clarification that I, I, I take what you're saying on the face of it, the 27 is supposed to be the immediate pace, but for that person who, who has been disqualified for access to legal aid because they have housing benefit, they have, where is that, where is that, that's not there because the guidance isn't there, so it doesn't actually immediately um, swoop in um, and... Such a person, when it comes to representation and ownership proceedings in the lower courts, the waiver will enable that person to have access to legal aid. Um, and as I said, the guidance for these required, the, the section 27 requires guidance to be in place. As the waiver is in place, there's no potential for the delay of its operation through that mechanism. So, clause 27, when it enters into effect, will afford protection to a person who would otherwise be unavailable to access legal aid by reason of their income or their capital from whatever source it comes. So they will be protected each of the other circumstances. What 27A asks us to do is to look at other circumstances and other protections that might be available in those circumstances and then to go further if we can uh, to help others and to help people in, in those different uh, scenarios. I suppose, uh, just to be fair in summary, Charlie, not take you longer, I think there is a nervousness in that um, the intent's there but it's not on the face of the bill. So um, given that reassurance when it's not actually there and then the timeline issue comes into play, um, so I suppose maybe there are just are serious concerns and nervousnesses about that. Thank you, Chair. Yes, thank you, Chair. And thank you very much for your presentation. Sorry I had to snap out there for question time, so please forgive me. And some of my questions may already have been asked and answered, so uh, please give me um, grace and hat. Can I ask on... We, we can see what's happening here because obviously you guys have been very nervous about clause 27 as it stands part of the bill and you then want to, you, with, for all the fears and concerns that you illustrated last week, you, you're trying to tighten up a clause that is quite wide in latitude. So uh, you, you hear today some of the members of the committee, it's not a committee position, but some of the members of the committee are still showing concerns. Do you have another clause there? Do you have another amendment uh, that that widens the scope a bit, uh, but still keeps it tight in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, we, we were very mindful last week, um, Chair, that the, the committee was not keen that we, we tried to to, um, to change the core purpose of, of clause twenty seven as it stands part of the bill. So it talks about a waiver. I think what we said, so, so what we were trying to do is qualify where that waiver applies. We're not changing it from, from a waiver to some kind of financial test, which may, I think as John has hinted, there may be a different uh, financial approach which may be more uh, beneficial. But you know, we're, we're mindful that, that there's a waiver, a broad waiver in the bill. We're looking about narrowing, taking, removing some of the most significant risks by narrowing the application of that waiver. And clause 27A allows us to look um, whether uh, a waiver is, is in of itself actually the, the best way to approach this. And it may, may, it may be, but equally it may not be. So uh, I take on board Shane Bradley's points that the waiver won't necessarily be beneficial to, to, to everybody, but it's what, what is already there in the bill. So we're, we're trying to focus it on, on who we believe. Um, Kind of many, many members said that it should be focused on uh, and, and take away some of that risk, financial, 
Yeah, I'll go on to 27A in a wee second, but just, just to repeat my question, do you have another plan B there? Do you have another amendment that you could move if you felt that this committee did not like your amendment 27 as it sits? Okay, thank you. So, can I ask then, see your uh, 2711A, uh, I think, which you said would stamp part subsection 2 then, if it was to go forward, where it talks about the client for the funding of representation at lower courts in the proceedings. But is that not in contradiction to Article 8, as it sits? Because Article 8 talks about family proceedings meaning any proceedings under the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court in relation to children. So does that not cover everything, including High Court? Article 8 proceedings can be brought at the Family Proceedings Centre to can take place at the Family Care Centre and at the High Court. Um, this, uh, not, this, this provision wouldn't contradict that, but would limit the application to waiver. So applications for representations to fair proceedings So whilst you're going away to contemplate and look at that and assess that, and that's quite understandable, you could then have a, a scenario where someone, a victim of domestic violence, is having to defend in a in, in the low court, and then for whatever reason, the judge then states, no, this has to go to high court. And then, whilst 27, whilst the clause in the bill as it stands will kick in uh, at the lower court, then that waiver would be removed at the High Court. Is that correct? Is that your understanding? Yes, the waiver would, that, that, that is correct. Essentially, yes, the waiver would cease to apply on the transfer of the case from the lower court to the higher court, either the Omnicare Centre or the higher court itself. Uh, the intention, our intention would be, um, assuming that the waiver ends up part of the bill, is that we would look to use existing powers that the legal services agency has, or the director has, to ensure that people are disadvantaged by that effect. Um, the, 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 the application of the waiver in respect of representation higher um, is an imperfect solution um, for, for someone seeking to defend uh, proceedings in those courts, not least because of the size of the potential contributions those people make to their own costs. So what we want to do is to say, is, is, is look at circumstances where a person who benefits from waiver in the lower courts and find their case transferring up so a higher court can be appropriately protected in those circumstances. We're not sure that we've ever passed in those circumstances. But, but you say about existing powers in that regard, but those existing powers have never been used to protect people in the past, ever? And indeed, they haven't been in, in, the, in the past these circumstances haven't arisen because there is no current way of applying the lower courts to transfer up 
this will be a new circumstance. But do you know how many? Do you know how many numbers or what percentage of family proceeding proceedings at lower court goes to high court, and where this requirement may well be met, whereby uh, someone doesn't qualify for legal aid? why you have now proposed two amendments, 27 and 27A, and you have listened to the committee uh, meeting last week, whereby we, a number of us have said we like the idea of a report within two years. But then can I ask the question, why are we still limiting it to Article 8? Now, are you telling me that there's nothing else in legislation that needs to be covered with regards to uh, domestic violence setting and, indeed, children? Other than Article 8 of the Children's Northern Ireland Order 1995? So, Article 8 of the Children's Order uh, covers uh, proceedings involving disputes between uh, people, people with parental responsibility, about the arrangements for the um, residence and contact of our children. The other proceedings, the other major branch of proceedings that take place on the Children's Order would be public law proceedings, those involving Contact orders, residence orders, prohibited steps, orders, specific issue orders. Uh, are you telling me there's nothing else, order or otherwise, that goes through court uh, with a conflict between two private people, children involved, that shouldn't be looked at in your report? Well, I think that's a very good question. 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 I think that's a
within the two-year period? No, no, no. I mean, as John said, there, there will be some of these cases because of that ruling will lead to public law Okay, so so I am I am mindful of trying to keep it within scope and limit, and that's why I concentrate only on the children's Northern Ireland Order, 1995. But are you saying to me that Article Five, Six, and Seven around parental responsibility is nothing to do with the two parents? Uh, Article Four, child welfare. I think all, all of these, all of these types of proceedings are linked. I think we've, we've, we've had an Article Eight in particular because it's what the current Clause 27 of the Bill does. It's what our new Clause 27 of the Bill in response to that would do. And it is the main focus for these disputes. But to be clear, if we're looking at Article 8 proceedings involving uh, families in which there are allegations of domestic abuse, we would inevitably also be looking at linked proceedings involving children in the courts and the experience of those. Um, so it's not so much that there's no other relevant uh, court proceedings we might want to consider. It's, it, it's that we, that our belief is, is our focus. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you're, you're actually... You're, yeah, but you're actually in, in 27A, you're, you're qualifying the proceedings to Article 8 alone, and only Article 8. And I, I, I simply ask the question, why? Because even Article 13, the change of a child's name or removal from jurisdiction, uh, Article 15, orders for financial aspect to children, Article 16, family assistance orders, you have a whole range of articles within the, the Children Non Iron Order 1995. So I'm asking the question, should we, should we be removing the Article 8 order in, in subsection 4 with regards to qualifying proceedings and add and insert the Children on Iron Order Assessing and reporting on the whole Children's Northern Ireland Order 1995, and you can report to say that it would be a bad idea to include Article 15, 16, 5, 7, and 8, or sorry, 5, 7, and 6 within the scope of the waiver. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. 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 I think that's a fair
Screen in terms of the officials. I'm not sure if you can hear us. Case for class comments. Okay, folks, apologies for this. Just one second. I'll see. Oh, they were coming back, Chair, did they? Okay, that's perfect because they're not showing up on our screen at the minute. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. They're not. They're going to ask them to log off and re-log on again. Okay. The wonders of modern technology. No, switch it off. Officials are able to come back into shot now. No. One second, but we are broadcasting live just for the benefit of members. Excuse me. Let's see while they're waiting 
let me dispose formally the other group of amendments then and then we can come back to the civil legal aid um, so members in terms of the department's amendments then around information sharing with schools protective measures for victims of abuse training independent oversight reporting on the operation part one of the act um, members content with those areas on the guidance aspect of it around the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service. Is it, has any members any view around that or are you relaxed in terms of the department's amendment? I have no strong views on it. Rachel? I would rather that it was on the face of the bill. Um, I'm not too sure, I, I, because it's, especially because it's in the training. Um, I don't see the reason for it not being in the guidance. I accept our explanation for it that in the training it's it's about an action and in the guidance it's about giving advice to themselves to do something. So I accept what they're saying, but I mean I don't have a strong, a very strong feeling about it. I, I accept their explanation. However, if other members are feeling very strong that it should be there, I'm happy to support. The, the members and give a committee view that, that we would take it in. Jeanette. Again, no strong opinion. I did take the department's explanation and perhaps it's good drafting, you know, um, not to have it there, given that it's not like the training, it was a distinctly different thing. You know, I could I could see the rationale there, so I'm I wouldn't be pushing for that. Okay. Well, I, I'm accepting of the department's position around this one, um, given the explanation that they have given uh, in respect of it, but I appreciate, Rachel, the point that you're making to it. So, Members can tell that we'll accept the department's amendment. Have it noted, Rachel, your preference was to, to keep it on, but we'll proceed on that basis. Okay. Um, then there was the amendment to clause 38, and that was in respect of the operate, um, bringing clause 31 into operation the day after royal assent that would enable the appointment process for independent oversight to be established ahead of the offence coming into operation. Again, to me, that was a, a positive amendment brought forward. The members contend that the committee would support that. And also then the long title and the short title of the bill in terms of those changes. Yes. Okay, so that only leads to um, civil legal aid. So let's check to see if officials are able to join us again through the broadcasting facility. So I'm not sure if officials can hear us because the screen is being blank at our end. Right, okay, well. Okay. Yes, we can we can see and hear you now. If you can hear us, yes. Okay. No, you're okay. Um, one of those things. Um, just a couple of questions that I wanted to tease out. Um, is the mediation a requirement before court action is taken? No, no, Chairman, not in Northern Ireland. Um, it, it isn't. Um, it is in some other jurisdictions, and that's one of the things that we're looking 
speaking out as part of our private family law action plan, which the committee got a written briefing on a number of weeks ago. Um, but mediation wouldn't be appropriate anyway in cases of domestic violence. So, um, so your answer is no, it's not currently practiced in Northern Ireland, and it wouldn't be appropriate in cases of domestic violence anyway. Um, obviously, this is tied into the bill and the new offence that's being related. So, is that the same for where it comes to psychological, financial, you know, the coercive control offence that is being created? Uh, my understanding, Chair, and we're at an early stage of looking at mediation as part of the private family law action plan, but my understanding from England and Wales and the Republic of Ireland that where domestic abuse, however defined in those jurisdictions, isn't in place or suspected, that mediation is not undertaken. Um, so that's one of the, the issues that we're looking at as we're developing our, our future um, proposals around mediation more generally in private family law. Um, in terms of then the clause 27 as is currently now in the bill, is it the department's assessment that this covers um, the, the intent behind it, that this covers all courts in terms of whether it's the lower court or the higher court? Would the clause 27 currently be applicable to all courts? I guess we don't have to do a reply. Um, I understand across the court. Yeah. Um, and does it remove the financial eligibility criteria in, in the circumstances that it is currently drafted? Uh, no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't remove any existing power discretions of the director of the Association of So, in terms of the financial eligibility, can you just elaborate on me then? It doesn't remove the director's discretion in these areas. No, his discretion is still being placed. The issue that we're is simply be that there will be two separate schemes of protection available to address the same issue, and those two might end up competing with one another, um, and it would require assessments to be needed by uh, applicants as to which uh, scheme of relief to apply for. Is there any other queries members have then or from the officials around this? Um, can I just ask finally, in terms of the commencement of these powers, whether it's the currently Clause 27 as in the bill or um, if it was Clause 27 by way of your amendment, when would you normally commence these? 
if you were to if you were to put on a, a commencement date for it, when would you normally seek to have that coming into effect? Yeah, commencement orders generally usually depend on the nature of the provision. Because uh, usually there's work to be done before um, before something can be reasonably commenced. So you would normally make sure that that work is done, and then you would commence the provisions, unless you need um, to commence particular parts of a of a, of a clause. So um, there's no hard and fast rule. Um, I should say, with, with our proposed clause 27A, because there's a two-year time limit, we're, we're proposing to commence that as soon as the bill gains royal assent. Um, that wouldn't be appropriate for clause 27, because obviously that guidance that we, we talked about in the earlier session needs to be in place. Yeah. And that's something that we, would, we are prioritising, but um, I mean, that would need to be in place for for that provision to be workable. Um, otherwise, we're, we're into all the kinds of issues that we described during the last session uh, last week. And maybe Veronica can just guide me on this one. When do chapters one and two of the bill become operational? When will they become operational? Yes. Um, those probably speaking will be brought into force when the domestic defence is, is being brought in. Okay, and that'll be brought in by way of order of the department? It'll be a, a commencement order. I, typically, you'll either have a provision that something comes into effect on royal assent, or it's by commencement order. And on royal assent, you can only bring in those things that, that come operationally and, and effectively and come into effect at that time. The, the majority of provisions would be brought forward by way of commencement order is, is a typical way for doing this. Okay, and that's... That's how this bill is drafted. The chapters one and two will be brought in by way of a commencement order. Yeah. Okay. Um, Linda Dillon. I think we probably need to just remember back to some of our earlier conversations, even if you consider our conversations with the Chief Constable of the PSNA, and they have said that it will take a period of time, potentially up to a year, for their staff to be trained in relation to this offence. So... I mean, if you were talking about that, and, I, and I'm not asking for you to give us dates, because I know you can't in relation to the guidance, but I would like to think that the guidance would be in place well before that period would be up. And if that's the case, then the guidance will be in place before this um, will be used against anybody in terms of the PSNA actually using this legislation whenever they are, are making a case against a, a perpetrator. Would that be fair to say? The, the intention is that Clause 27, like the rest of Chapters 1 and 2, will come into uh, force on the appointed day of the Commencement Order alongside the, the, the domestic abuse offence itself. So it will all come operative simultaneously. Um, I mean, it makes little sense to bring Clause 27 into operation in advance yeah. of the creation of domestic abuse offence because there will then be no domestic abuse offence to which to tie it, if you mean. Um, so the commencement of the various provisions will be simultaneous. Sinead? Uh, just wondering, Chair, are there any examples anywhere where you can really tighten down on when a commencement order must must um, be enacted by or presented by? 
members need? If not, then we'll need to, as a committee, try and consider this in a, a little bit more detail. But um, at this stage, can I thank the officials for providing us with all of that information? Um, it's been very helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay, members, um, we will ask the bill clerk to come and join us and go into closed session and then back into public session just to finalise proceedings. Okay members, um, okay, members um, just to, to complete our work on the uh, further consideration stage amendments um, in respect to clause 27 that is currently uh, in the bill following the consideration stage um, and also in respect to the Department's uh, proposed amendment at further consideration stage to uh, a new Clause 27, um, that the Committee would put forward a, uh, an amendment to both of them in respect of commencement being associated with and tied into the uh, commencement order that would give operational effect to Chapters 1 and 2 of the bill. So in terms of members in respect of this, um, members opposed is Linda, Emma and Gemma. To, uh, the, to the clause as it is on the face, on the face of the bill. Um, and those in favour of, of that commencement being applied to clause 27 of the bill are Sinead, Doug, myself, Paul and Rachel. Um, and then in respect to the proposed amendment by the Department of Clause 27, uh, all members present are in favour of a commencement um, being associated with Chapters 1 and 2 coming into operational effect via, via a commencement order. Okay, so members are agreed with the committee position in respect of that. Okay, members, can I thank you for your time and patience in trying to work through uh, this particular issue and the further uh, consideration stage debate will take place in due course. Thank you, members. Round and.